it was totally by chance and I think that's really sad actually because you know they joked oh don't know you got this far well I do because I worked incredibly hard to to keep up not to get ahead to keep up I've always had to work twice as hard as anyone else just to to get to the same position as you and I always felt that hello and welcome to the myself included podcast the show about covering taboo topics many of us wish were not taboo, myself included. I'm your host, Tiffany Chathawan, and today's episode is the first interview episode. So, okay, because yeah, we were on the generation side of things. What's your take on the snowflake butterfly generation? Well, the best, the, the, the thing about snowflake is what people, I, I always find that funny. I find it funny as a, as a, as a criticism because when snowflakes come together, they create storms. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a weird thing to think of snowflakes because it's like, well, okay, but you do realize that, like, if you put a few snowflakes together, then suddenly next thing you know, you've got an avalanche, you've got yourself a storm. <laughs> so it's not like, like the, it's just a weird, I don't know, it's a weird, it's a weird uh, analogy. Look, um, every generation, and we will do the same, trust you me, we will do the same with our kids' as kids' generation. We will find labels to call them something, you know? We all it's just a natural part of the life of just finding ways of criticizing our younger generations and believing and holding on to the tr- belief that our, our upbringing was better. Mm-hmm. That our life was nostalgic. Like I'm seeing it now. I'm so stressed about mobile phones and social media and technology and seeing the kids and seeing how my life was better when I was a kid, you know, playing outdoors with my mates and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, that's what my parents said when we were playing video games with my brother. My brother used to play video games. My parents were like, what are you doing? We used to be outside. We didn't have video. And their generation, their parents thought that they were being lazy and, you know, and all this stuff. So, so this happens a lot, okay? Mm-hmm. But I, I love it because that means there's a place where we can come together and discuss and explore and stay curious. So um, I gave a talk, you know, a couple of years ago in, an, in a big organization around, you know, millennials and how to better lead engage millennials in the workplace. Um, and what was interesting was to see the animosity at the start of the talk from older generations, Gen Xs and baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much around like, why do we need to talk about millennials? Don't we talk about millennials enough? I didn't used to have a free lunch, right? They've got a, and they're like, we've, we've given them bean bags and ping pong tables and a beer bar and they're still not happy. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What I often use as a metaphor, and this usually lands, but what I use often is it's a bit like a relationship. It's a little bit like saying, I've just, I don't know, I'm going to go for stereotypes here, okay? So I'm just naming it. But I've just given my partner flowers. I've bought him or her um, a gift, I don't know, and they're still complaining. Mm-hmm. But you're not, you're not addressing what the real problem is. It's like, yeah. Are you there for them? Or do you listen to when they've got issues? Do you talk more about yourself than you ask them about them? You know, like so many things that could be going on in that relationship that is underlining the issue, not the fact that you're throwing gifts at. Bean bags, ping pong tables, you know, yoga, great. Fresh fruit bowls, great. All good stuff. Like they're not bad things. But if you're ticking boxings and hoping you're going to create an, an engaged culture workforce because of the things you throw, at people, it's just, you're missing the point. It, it's, it's, it's a systematic culture change that needs to happen around 
how do we lead and how do we show up? What do we tolerate? What do we not tolerate? Why are we doing this? Why does it matter? What do we stand for? What do we not stand for? Right? Those are the things that you buy. And can I show you how the work you're doing makes a difference to the people we serve? Can yeah. I show you how what we do as an organization is making something better for the world? Because if you can't, good luck on attracting and retaining talent over the next 10 to 20 years. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I felt, because, yeah, I, t- I went back to one job for a different role. I think it was my, my best friend was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I didn't know that about you. I thought you had all your finances. and Like, I thought you'd be the <laughs> kind joking. of person that had all your stuff in order. And it was, no, and this is why I wanted to talk about it. Because again, something that people assume if you're successful, like you have all your stuff in your, all your life in order. Um, but I think the other thing was that, um, you know, I wish, I think it was more a message to my former self and a message to people of younger generations is I grew up with very humble beginnings and at no point did I learn anything about finances and saving and to manage money. I made the stupid decision for whatever reason of taking out a credit card when I worked in the city, even though I earned really well and just spending more money than I earned and racking up debt on kind of designer clothes and, uh, you know, the days to fancy places and expensive hotels. And it was just so ridiculous. Um, and no one really kind of taught me how to, you know, be smart about money. And so when I finally kind of debt free, um, I just wanted to talk about it because it was such a weight off my shoulders to finally like have no uh, credit card debts or anything like that. And I thought, and finally not be in my overdraft. Um, And I think we just don't talk about these things enough. And again, it's quite a stigmatized topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to be like, you know, I, if I've, I think what I try to do is give people hope and inspiration. Like if I can do this, so can you, um, yeah. I share a lot of my story and you know, I, it was great that LinkedIn got in touch and picked up the story and then republished it as part of a, an official kind of LinkedIn blog, um, about money. So I think it's, you know, it's a conversation starting to happen more, but hopefully it will continue to do so because I think a lot of people feel shame around it. Um, you know, about money, money issues. And uh, you, again, if you think about the, the demographic and the audience of LinkedIn and corporate professionals, um, I'm sure that there's a lot of them that might be going through some, some form of money struggle, especially with what's happening right now. You know, we could all be better if we talked about it openly. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think we have, uh, yeah, again, we have a tendency. Yeah, again, this is not something I was that familiar with and would have even felt comfortable mm-hmm. talking about probably. But two yeah. years ago, I think it's almost like two years ago to the day, um, I did a little thing with Professor Green, uh, Stephen Manderson, and that we became friends as a result of that. The most unlikely friendship going, like me in my cardigans and him not so much a cardigan wearer um, but uh, like I've attended some of his gigs now and gone backstage and they're all really cool people and there's me going oh don't mind if I do have a gin and tonic with my cardigan but anyway um, <laughs> so basically he posted two years ago about um, 
homeless people, rough sleepers, and the fact that Bournemouth Council had put bars on benches. I stated to Stephen that I had gone to Bournemouth University and I was embarrassed by the way they were treating their rough sleepers because I helped feed rough sleepers in Bedford. So we mm-hmm. arranged to meet up the following day. We went down to Bournemouth. We removed the bars off the benches. The police came along and were very shouty. But we did it full of respect and we didn't damage anything and we put it all back to how it was. And as a result of that, we've become friends and we discuss uh, mental health, but in particular suicide within, you know, within men. And that's really opened my eyes. And now when I listen to a lot of his songs, they're, they're very poignant and they do discuss a lot of these topics. And I think there's a bit more pressure on men um, generally speaking these days um, and I think times have definitely changed over the last 20 years and we're having to readjust you know 20 years ago mobile phones didn't exist social media didn't exist so we're a lot more vulnerable I feel a lot more vulnerable now and I have to be super careful of what I say and what I think and I have to educate myself you know over the last six months with the Black Lives Matter, Me Too movement. There's, mm-hmm. We're constantly being educated. A 40-year-old man is a bit like a dinosaur, you know? Young people <laughs> have grown up knowing this, this way of life. Whereas I, I yeah. used to have to go knock for my mates if I wanted to speak to them, not go on some internet thing on my phone. So, so we, are, we are the dinosaurs and we're having to learn and adjust and, and get with the times, whether it is the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. And I think we all are. And um, mm-hmm. that's up to us to want to, to want to develop and to want to still fit in and understand and not feel like we're being inappropriate even. I mean, my father, he's passed away now several years, but if he was around today, he would have moments of acting inappropriately, not because he's a bad person, but because mm-hmm. the time when he grew up, things were different. Terminology was different. Our understanding of each other and our and our inner workings were different. So we've got to make sure, I think it's our responsibility to make sure we keep up with those things. Yeah, and I do stand up comedy on the side and you have to be so careful now. So I'm intrigued to ask you, could you talk about having everything society sets us up to desire? So the house, the marriage, the career, mm-hmm. and how actually happiness comes from the smaller things in life. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that stage in your life? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I think about the early part of my 20s and that middle part of my 20s, I think I saw life as like a bit of a checklist of, okay, graduate, then get the great job, tick, then maybe get a slightly better job, tick, then get engaged, tick, then buy a house, tick. And I was tick, tick, ticking all these things. And, you know, they, they felt great. It felt really nice to buy a house. And, you know, I, I'm so glad that I, you know, I'm still married to the person I married and it was absolutely the right decision <laughs> and it was lovely. But those moments are only ever moments. You know, it's not that you get married and you suddenly get an upgrade to feeling 100% all the time. You're still the same person and you have this lovely weekend that is incredible. But then you, you, you come back down to the same level that you were at before that wedding or before you bought the house. And, you know, there's this idea, the myth of a rival fallacy. We think once I get that job or once I lose 10 pounds or once I save 10 grand I'm just going to feel like a much happier person but the science tells us that we see this you know if you think about it in terms of a graph you see this spike of happiness once you achieve the goal and then very quickly you come back down to the same level you were at before so what I believe is that a much better way to 
you know, improve our well-being, to increase the amount of joy we feel within our lives is to focus on the little things because it's the little things that are going to raise that base level a little bit higher. And it's not to eradicate the highs at all. You know, we still want those, those happy moments and those precious moments, but it's about making sure that when you come back down to the base, the base is higher than it was before. And so for me, there are a few things that I found really shift and improve that base. The first is gratitude and gratitude is really about coming to those simple everyday things. When I think back to, you know, when I was 25, 26, and I was on this rat race of chase, 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 I wasn't present in my day to day at all. It was about get to the weekend because we're going on that city break or get to next year because we're buying the house or it was constantly future focused. And gratitude really makes, like helps us to ground ourselves in I'm so lucky to have the people I have in my life. I'm so lucky to do this work. I'm so lucky to have this roof over my head. And it takes away that comparison layer because I think when we're constantly on this sort of achievement like checklist, we are looking at everybody else in our life and we're sort of thinking, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, how am I doing against these other people? Have I got more ticks on the list? Am I like, you know, reaching the milestones at the time I'm supposed to reach them? And that makes us miserable because we constantly feel like no matter what we achieve, you know, it's then about the next thing. So that gratitude really rooting in the present moment, I think is really important. And then another thing I talk about a lot and again, work on client, work with clients on is about.